This episode may contain details that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. A hardworking young woman looking for love in Charlotte, North Carolina, meets a handsome and charming man online. But after only a few months, she realizes he will not be her happily ever after. She tells her sister she will be driving to his home in South Carolina to break things off and fails to show up for work in the days following. While investigators work diligently to find her, there is little to no coverage of her in the media in the early days of the search. We take a deep dive into why this may be in this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. There are a number of missing persons cases right here in the Carolinas, and some have received more media attention than others. These are the stories that tug at our heartstrings, make us pray it never happens to anyone in our families, and wonder if there is still any way to find closure for these missing persons and their loved ones. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode number seven, Nikki McFadder. Nikki McFadder was a 30-year-old woman working in Charlotte at the time of her disappearance. A goal-oriented person who always seemed to know what the next step was, she joined the Navy shortly after graduating from high school. After her time in the military, she took a job as a ticket agent for U.S. Airways at the Charlotte Douglas International Airport. Nikki was an adventurous young woman who, according to her older sister LaToya, also enjoyed skydiving in her downtime. She turned to online dating, hoping to find companionship. It was on a website called tag.com that she met Theodore Manning, who was the same age as Nikki, and had served time in the U.S. Air Force before taking a job in Columbia, South Carolina. He was also divorced and had a young daughter. One of the reasons I wanted to highlight this case in Missing in the Carolinas is because of the fact that I hadn't heard of it until very recently. That could be my own fault, but it's no secret that there are some missing persons cases and eventual homicide cases that are not spotlighted by the media. 
I had not heard of Nikki's story until I saw an episode of the show Web of Lies that featured her. This show was produced in 2017, but Nikki went missing in 2009. I've lived in the Charlotte area since 2003, so I feel like this should have been on my radar. We'll talk more about that later on in the episode. Nikki went missing in May 2009. She was driving her 2003 black Honda Accord. Based on what I've read about this case, Nikki had told her sister LaToya about her relationship, but kept a lot of the details to herself. She did seem disappointed that Theodore Manning, who she called Teddy, seemed to be less interested in a serious relationship and more into playing the field. After about three months, Nikki had had enough of his behavior. She told LaToya she was making the 90-minute drive to Columbia to get some things from Teddy's home and tell him that she was ending their relationship. She had given him some of her jewelry that he was supposed to have repaired, and she wanted it back. LaToya didn't hear back from Nikki after that. On May 6th, Nikki had called a friend and said she was in Columbia and had run out of gas. Her friend thought this was unusual because it wasn't like Nikki, but she didn't hear anything after that call, so she put it in the back of her mind. At first, LaToya didn't worry about not hearing from her sister. She thought maybe Nikki had gone on a trip, as she had done that before because she worked for an airline and could get last-minute tickets at good deals. But then Nikki's boss called LaToya and told her Nikki hadn't been into work for almost a week. This was a game-changer. LaToya, who lived outside of Raleigh, grew concerned and reported Nikki missing at the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department on May 11th. Working jointly, the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department and investigators with the Richland County Sheriff's Department immediately suspected foul play. They knew Nikki had left Charlotte and likely had not made it back. They worried something had happened to Nikki during her travels to Columbia. Investigators knew the first place they needed to start was Theodore Manning, because Nikki had told her sister that's who she planned to visit. They made a beeline to question him. At first, he tried to downplay his relationship, saying they were friends with benefits and nothing else. They took his statement, but quietly kept digging. Their suspicions were heightened when they got notification that Nikki's ATM card had been used in South Carolina on May 6th. After obtaining video surveillance, they could see a black male using the card seven different times, eventually removing $588 from Nikki's accounts. During the surveillance, they could see him getting into the passenger side of a gold Chevrolet Lumina that was not Nikki's, and this concerned police even further. They were pretty convinced the man in the video was Theodore Manning. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Are you looking to level up your writing this summer? Whether you focus on nonfiction or are more inclined to creative writing, WOW Women on Writing has a whole roster of classes this summer that can help you achieve your goals. In July, you can register for online classes like Writing the Picture Book, an auto-fiction workshop on exploring hybrid writing, the Women Writers Book Group, Building Meaning in a Memoir, or Writing Nonfiction for Children or Young Adults. For those who have had a hard time fitting writing into their already busy schedules, there's even a class called No Matter How Busy You Are, You Can Still Find Time to Write. To check out these reasonably priced online writing classes, 
visit wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the Classes tab. And now, let's get back to our story. Investigators obtained a search warrant for Theodore Manning's home and discovered receipts for cleaning supplies, including bleach, that had been purchased on May 7th. He said the cleaning supplies were for another woman he knew, 27-year-old Kendra Goodman. When investigators talked to her, they noticed she drove a gold Chevrolet Lumina, the exact same car that was in the surveillance photo of the man using Nikki's ATM card. She also tried to tell them that the cleaning supplies were for her and she knew nothing about Nikki McFadder. She also shared that she had a casual relationship with Theodore Manning, meaning she was another one of the women he called a friend with benefits. Investigators weren't convinced. They pressed on, asking Kendra to take a polygraph test, which she agreed to do without a lawyer. The test showed signs of deception, and when she was pressed further, she began talking. This is what Kendra Goodman said happened. She said that on May 6th, Theodore told her to stop by his house. When she arrived, she found him working on a black Honda he said belonged to a friend. Then, he asked her to follow him while he delivered the car back to his friend because he needed a ride back home. They drove to a remote area on Peach Road in Fairfield County, and he asked her to wait in a nearby church parking lot while he continued on down an adjacent dirt road. A few minutes later, she heard a loud explosion. Theodore ran back to her car smelling like gasoline. He claimed he didn't have anything to do with the explosion she had heard and asked her to take him back to his house. Kendra said she did not know the car had belonged to Nikki McFadder or that she had been missing for that long. She agreed to cooperate with investigators and led them to the area where she thought Nikki's car might be. There, they found a completely charred and burned out car and the skeletal remains of a body in the trunk. The skull showed a clear bullet hole to the back of the head. Dental records later confirmed the remains belonged to Nikki. Kendra said she had no idea the body had been in the back of the car when she followed Theodore to the site. With this information, investigators went back to Theodore and basically told him to stop lying and that Kendra had led them to the car and Nikki's remains. Theodore Manning was arrested on May 30th. Confronted with the evidence, he started talking. He tried to tell investigators, and later his defense attorney, that Nikki had come to visit him when she told her sister. He stressed to her that he was not looking for a serious relationship. After hearing that news, he said she grew enraged grabbed one of his loaded handguns out of a nearby bag and started waving it around. He managed to wrestle the gun from her and in the process, it went off, killing her instantly. But investigators with the Richland County Sheriff's Department weren't so sure about this scenario as forensics determined Nikki had been shot at point blank rage in the back of the head. It didn't seem like an injury that could have occurred during a struggle for the gun. But they let him keep spinning his version of the events. And spin he did. 
He said Kendra had helped him clean up the crime scene in his home with the bleach and knew Nikki's body was in the trunk of the car when she followed him out to that dirt road in Fairfield County. He also claimed she was the one who told him they should try to get the money out of Nikki's bank account with her ATM card. Kendra denied pretty much every part of his story, except the part where she followed him when he left the Honda out in the country. She said the bleach they purchased at the grocery store was basic cleaning supplies for their respective homes. She said when she drove him to the ATM, she had no idea whose card he was using. She did later admit that on the evening after they disposed of the car with Nikki's remains, they had sex at Theodore Manning's house. As for who did what and when, I think the truth is probably a version of both Theodore Manning and Kendra Goodman's stories. I believe he probably told Kendra that Nikki had gone crazy with a gun and he was only defending himself. That's likely not what happened, though. She probably called him a few choice names and he felt disrespected, grabbing the gun as she was preparing to walk out of his home, therefore ending her life. Then he scrambled and tried to come up with a plan. He called Kendra and asked her to help him clean up and dispose of the car. She may have suggested they try to drain Nikki's accounts. Neither one appeared to be innocent people by any means. Nikki had no idea who the real Theodore Manning was. This story highlights the dangers of online dating, where people can spin fake personas for themselves and present themselves in different light. From the reports I've read, Nikki was probably investing more time and energy into their relationship than Theodore was. She was, after all, the one driving back and forth from Charlotte to Columbia to see him. Meanwhile, he was sitting back, dating other women, and probably continuing to meet even more women online. He had a bit of a checkered past as well, but that didn't come out until his trial in 2010. In August 2008, Theodore Manning was charged with first-degree criminal domestic violence. Columbia police said that 10 months earlier, he grabbed a 22-year-old woman around the neck and started choking her. She was a woman he had been living with. A jury eventually found Theodore Teddy Manning guilty of only voluntary manslaughter. He received 30 years behind bars, a sentence which did not sit well with Nikki's friends and family. Kendra Goodman was found guilty of being an accessory to murder after the fact and only served a few years in prison in exchange for her testimony against Theodore. As I put together the notes for this episode, I noticed I couldn't find many articles, especially here in the Charlotte area, about Nikki's initial disappearance and the search for her. You know how I usually include clips from news segments about cases? I couldn't find any about Nikki. Maybe some existed, but if they did, they weren't archived very well. There were more articles that came out of South Carolina, which makes sense given that that is where the murder happened and suspects were arrested. There have also been several true crime shows that have covered Nikki's case, including Investigation Discovery Channel's Web of Lies, where I first learned about Nikki. The show Homicide City also covered it in an episode titled The Devil in Disguise. Then I started wondering if I hadn't heard of this case before because of an unconscious bias. Nikki McFadder was a black woman, 
And it's no secret that cases featuring white women get more media coverage. There's even a term for it called the missing white woman syndrome. I found an article on a website called thecrimereport.org written by Robin L. Barton that spells out what this syndrome is. Barton wrote, According to the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, NamUs, there are as many as 100,000 active missing persons cases in the United States at any given time. If you went solely by what you read in the media, you'd probably assume that most of these cases involve pretty white women. After all, disappearances like those involving Natalie Holloway, Lauren Spear, and Holly Bobo get splashed across the headlines and are the focus of morning talk and true crime shows. But do the statistics support this perception? It's true that there are more women than men reported missing each year, but it's only by a very small margin. When was the last time you heard about a young man who had gone missing? Barton goes on to explain that we're more likely to see cases featured that focus on a damsel in distress, or rather, a young, beautiful, white damsel in distress. Race definitely plays into it. This article highlighted the differences between coverage of the Lacey Peterson case and the case of Latoya Figueroa. Lacey, as most of us know, was a young pregnant woman who disappeared from an upscale town in California while supposedly walking her dog. I am embarrassed to admit I had never even heard of Latoya Figueroa. She was a young woman of African-American and Hispanic descent who went missing in Pennsylvania in 2005. She was five months pregnant at the time and was later found strangled to death in a partially wooded lot outside of Chester, Pennsylvania. The father of her child, a man named Stephen Poches, was eventually charged with her murder. At the time she went missing, networks were focused on covering the disappearance of Natalie Holloway, who had gone missing on a school trip to Aruba. Despite there being a $100,000 reward being offered for information about LaToya's death, it was not actively covered in the news. Nor do I remember any news coverage of Stephen Poach's trial in 2006, where he was convicted for the murder of LaToya and her unborn child. But I couldn't get away from the clips of Scott Peterson's face splashed all over the news media when his trial was underway. I have to admit that as a journalist... I may be part of the issue here. I most likely have my own unconscious bias when it comes to the stories I follow, and I would like to think that I wouldn't, as a minority female of Hispanic descent. But the fact that I hadn't heard of Nikki McFadder and LaToya Figueroa is partially my own fault for not actively researching cases involving minorities. I need to do better. I did find an article in the alternative weekly Charlotte Creative Loafing that was published back in June of 2009, around the time Nikki McFadder disappeared. In the article titled, A Double Standard, Nikki McFadder Matters, writer Nsinga Burton pointed out at the time of Nikki's disappearance, national news covered the case of an affluent white woman from Philadelphia named Bonnie Sweeten. Sweeten had called police claiming to be in the trunk of her car with her daughter. She said two black men had kidnapped them and stuffed them in the trunk. Sweeten was eventually found at Disney World with her daughter, unharmed, her story about being kidnapped a completely fabricated story. Her ex-husband had even appeared on the Today Show 
pleading for her safe return. Burton pointed out that it was only after Nikki's family and friends began sharing her disappearance on Facebook and other social networking sites did local news even start to pick it up. It didn't receive any national media coverage at the time, and Nikki was an actual victim. Burton wrote, The fact that the same level of concern is not shown for the safety of black and brown women is unacceptable. A TV show I used to watch, Without a Trace, covered this topic of unconscious bias in the media back in 2006. In the episode titled White Balance, a white teen girl and a black teen boy went missing at the same time. Throughout the episode, the media becomes more and more focused on covering the girl's story rather than the boy's, and eventually, almost all of the agents are pulled to work on the girl's case. The ironic thing about the episode was that the girl was actually engaging in more high-risk behavior than the boy, who was an honor student who had never gotten into trouble before. These biases are alive and well today. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine from high school posted something interesting on Facebook. He's a member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians in North Carolina. After the video of George Floyd's murder began circulating, he posted, I wonder if it's going to take someone live recording one of the thousands of indigenous women being trafficked, sold, beaten, raped, and murdered before that gets taken seriously too. This led me to do some online research where I discovered an extensive article written by Antoinette Kerr titled, North Carolina officials are ignoring a crisis of missing and murdered indigenous women. Apparently, there are a number of Lumbee women in eastern North Carolina that have been murdered or gone missing, and their family are having a hard time getting anyone to investigate. One of my favorite true crime podcasts is called The Vanished, where the host Marissa Jones makes it a point to cover missing persons cases from all walks of life, whether the missing are involved in high-risk activities such as prostitution, substance or alcohol abuse, or run-ins with the law. If a family reaches out to her about a case, she talks to them. She doesn't turn away cases due to someone's lifestyle, and she staunchly defends her decisions on social media when people start making judgments about the cases profiled in the episodes. I respect that about her and her work. I agree that there needs to be a shift in the way some missing persons cases are investigated and covered by the media. Voices are starting to call out for a change, and I'm hoping we will see a shift in perception of what deserves to be covered. After all, I can't say anything about the investigation of Nikki's disappearance. Investigators from two different states quickly pulled together and had zeroed in on their suspects within just a few weeks of her being reported missing. But the media coverage seemed to be lacking. There was no reason Nikki McFadder didn't deserve statewide or even national media coverage. As a journalist, I personally am going to try to be a part of this change as well. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to visit my blog and read more about true crime cases from all over the country, including the ones featured here, visit missinginthecarolinas.com. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW! Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers. 
at wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson.